If you have an app or you have a, a Bible and you want to turn to Jude chapter 1, we're going to start reading through the book of Jude together over the next few weeks. The book of Jude doesn't even have chapters. It just has verses because it's so short. It's awesome. It's kind of the book that you want to start with when you're like, should I read the Bible? This is a good one to start with because uh, you can say, I, I've read an entire book of the Bible and those kinds of things. Now, so that you know, I had a little fun putting this together, and each week of the five-week series, I do sermon titles. And you don't remember any of my sermon titles, right? Because neither do I, because nobody cares. But I went to seminary, and they told me I had to, and it makes me feel comfortable. So all five sermon titles are also quality names for indie rock groups. And uh, this week is Unnoticed Creeps, and I would buy your record just because I, th I thought it was very biblical. But, uh, so each week we'll have a new indie band, and if you're really bad at playing an instrument like me and think practice is for losers, then uh, uh, I play guitar and bass and banjo and drums because uh, my son plays drums, so I've heard him do it, so I can probably do it. And, uh, and I can sing a bit. I'm really passionate about it, but... Uh, I play music with the band up here, and they say, James, the notes are on the page, and I say, the music is in my heart. And, <laughs> and then they don't tell me like when practice is and stuff, and I'm not on the schedule. I don't, I don't know what happened there, but probably an oversight. Jude is uh, Jesus' little brother, uh, most likely little brother, uh, maybe older, depending on your uh, reading of the timeline. And Jesus' family, if you can imagine, if you have older siblings, you can uh, just imagine if your older sibling was uh, going around telling people that he was the Savior of the world, that he was the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, that would probably, if you can just in your head imagine your old, I'm an oldest, so I can just imagine my siblings struggling with me telling them this. Uh, and Jesus' family actually had a really difficult time during his life at believing that their brother, who they knew, uh, was the savior of the world. After Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, uh, we find a couple of Jesus' siblings actually becoming leaders in the very early church. Uh, Jesus' brother James was actually uh, the uh, leader in the church in the city of Jerusalem, which was kind of where Christianity started because uh, that's where Jesus was during his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and there's kind of, he became this leader. And then we find in this book that Jude becomes this leader as well. Now, Jude, just a little fun thing. Jude's name is actually like Judah or Judas. Um, and uh, we, in the Bible, English translations, change it to Jude because Judas was the guy who betrayed Jesus and, and helped the bad guys kill Jesus. Uh, so as when your name is Judas and the other most famous Judas was a bad guy, uh, you go by Jude. <laughs> and so uh, the book of Jude is, uh, is written that way. Jude is a guy who is um, Jewish in his faith and his upbringing and believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of what the Jewish faith was pointing to. And so he put his full faith and trust in Jesus, his brother, and, uh, but also his Lord and his Savior, and then uh, became this leader in the early church. And he writes this letter, and in the context, and you can go ahead and read it during the week or something like that. It's, it's like one page in your Bible, but you can 
read through it. It's written to people who uh, probably grew up in the Jewish faith or understood the Jewish faith or uh, Christians who, uh, followers of Jesus who knew the context that Jesus grew up in and and we kind of go through that and those kinds of things. So we're going to do the first seven verses today and read through that and uh, then we'll get... um, well, we'll see how it goes, and then uh, we'll do within four weeks after this more and more and more on Jude, and uh, and then we actually, this is a side note that doesn't matter, but we're actually going to do a six-week series after that on uh, introducing your children uh, to Jesus, like how to Christianly raise your children. Some of the things that the Bible teaches about that, I'm not going to. I'm not going to start like uh, this is the only way cult. We're not going to do that. Uh, some of you do this, some of you do that, but there's some character issues and communication issues that all of us can work on. Uh, and then we're going to do a Christmas series, and it's Christmas time, and then the Belize team goes to Belize, and when they come back, we'll hear from them. That'll be fantastic. So lots of cool things happening as we go. But let's uh, read the Bible together, and then I would like to talk about it. So. It starts like this, and so you know, this is the way most letters would start with, like, in, like when we say dear whoever, they would introduce who's talking, which just kind of makes sense. Uh, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, hence the band name, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is uh, the beginning of this letter, and you can see it escalates kind of (laughs) quickly. Like, we go from, hey, how are you guys? I love you, to Sodom and Gomorrah, (laughs) right? Uh, This Jew to me would have been friends, because they would get right to the point. And uh, uh, there is this... um, push that Jude is putting on in this letter that I hope, and there's parts of this that work on, like that for me, that I hope makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Like if we just read through and study Jude and you go, yep, that's good, I'm good, uh, then I don't think I've pushed hard enough. And I hope that no matter where your theological or political leanings are, that Jude pushes on you because we would rather believe the scripture than believe our interpretations of the scripture. Does that make sense? And I trust that we're smart enough to read the scripture and understand it and also understand our own biases historically and just in what we think and the way that we act and those kinds of things. So 
The book of Jude begins, if you can flip the slide back, we're going to go through verse 1 to 7 in order and talk about them, but I wanted you to see where we were going so you weren't surprised. Jude introduces himself not as Jesus' brother, which would have gotten him some instant, like, I would have a t-shirt of, like, me and Jesus, right, and say brothers underneath. Like, I would let people know, but, uh, well, it depends. I'm a jealous guy, and so I probably wouldn't. But uh, Jude introduces himself as a servant of his brother, Jesus Christ, and the brother of James, who people would have recognized and uh, then would have given him some credit. But he only wants credit from James, not from Jesus. And he writes the letter then to those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So he's writing this letter to people who are called, loved, and kept in God. This is a letter to what we would call the church or to what we would call Christians or followers of Jesus. This is written to those kind of people. And he most likely had a specific group of people that he wrote to in mind. Uh, Some scholars think it might have been the church in like Egypt uh, because this letter was accepted very, very early as as scripture down in Egypt, but maybe not. Some people think another city or whatever. And then, uh, so he goes through and you see the three things he says. This is kind of the way Jude works. He works in threes. So to those who are called, beloved, and kept the three things, and called being something that happened in your past, beloved being something that's happening now, and kept being kept for the future in Jesus Christ. And then he gives this blessing, uh, may mercy, peace, and love, three things, again, be multiplied to you. And we could talk about that, that would be a whole sermon by itself, but we'll be all right with that. So he says, beloved, as he said already, God loves you, I love you, so beloved people, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, so he wanted to write about one thing, instead he feels it's necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith. Now, this is the part this week that I do not like, and we should probably skip over, so we're not going to. Uh, This word, contend for the faith, is, that word contend, is like an aggressive, uh, like athletic, the word would be used in athletic competitions for how hard athletes would strive to win, all right? This is like, this is fight for the faith. This is what it's saying. And as a left-leaning immigrant to your country, uh, I don't like fighting for the faith. And I see people on the news who are going to jail for not signing a marriage certificate, and I'm like, ah, don't fight for that, don't, and I'm like, and then I read the Bible, and I'm like, crap, right? Like, the Bible's right again, and I'm wrong again, you know? But it, this is, some of us rub the wrong way, again, and I'm not trying to make a political commentary, I'm just saying it's way more complicated than I wish it was, uh, that I, the whole notion of fighting for the faith to me, rubs me the wrong way because I don't like violence. Well, no, let me back up. I don't like, I don't like unfun violence, uh, <laughs> right? Like I, I don't, I, I'm not into unnecessary fighting. I feel like we don't need to defend ourselves. I feel like I live under the cross of Christ and, I, and Jesus didn't defend himself and so why would I think that I need to defend myself? Why would I need to contend or fight for something when I believe that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was sufficient for everything and, and, the, and Jesus provides everything? That I, why would I need to do that? And then I read the scripture and it tells me to do that. Uh, and it, it makes it difficult, doesn't it? 
And this probably isn't the part that you thought was going to make me feel awkward. Uh, <laughs> it was probably more of the Sodom and Gomorrah stuff that we'll talk about in a minute, but that's going to make you feel awkward. So, uh, but there is, when you read through that, Jude is actually pushing the people because this faith that was once and for all delivered for the saints, meaning the faith by the time Jude is writing is established, is known. The faith is that we put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection is exclusively the mode by which people enter into right relationship with God, that there is no mediator for sin outside of Jesus. There is no uh, way to God or path up the mountain of God outside of Jesus. And this is established. And he and Jude actually calls us to contend for the faith in this way. This is part of the reason I think this book might be so relevant to us today. We live in a culture that is increasingly pluralistic and that attacks the ex exclusivity of Jesus's claims. The Christian faith actually believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That other people outside of Jesus, or outside of being in Jesus, will not experience the joys of heaven that we read about in the scripture. This, again, is a difficult thing to talk about in our culture because that exclusivity of Christ that Christ himself claimed is rubs our, us as living in our culture, it rubs us the wrong way. Because I have really good friends and family members who are good people, who I love, who love the people around them, who are very nice upon them. And I have to depend on the grace of God and hope. Right? I hope that maybe this scripture's wrong. <laughs> That's kind of a stupid hope. <laughs> but I hope that way. I have lots of other stupid hopes. <laughs> I'm cheering for the Browns this year. <laughs> is, uh, I pick a different team every year so I'm never disappointed like you Seahawks fans, but <laughs> loyalty to a professional sports team makes no sense biblically. But anyways, <laughs> but there is this. It doesn't. <laughs> All right, so there you go. I'm not saying you're sinning. The Bible's saying that. So there is... <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. Okay. But he wants, Jude wants us to contend for this faith and contend for this exclusivity of this faith. And the reason is because of this early heresy that was happening where these unnoticed creeps were coming in who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly, other Bibles say godless people, who actually pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The two things they do is pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord, meaning the, deny the exclusivity of Christ, being Jesus is the only teacher or the only, uh, the author and the perfecter of the, the Christian faith. Now, what this... Uh, so, you know, I've taken like classes on preaching and they want me to really dumb it down because in my classes they assumed you were dumb. I don't think you're as dumb as my professor said you were. Um, so that's my compliment to you today. So I'm going to 
teach you some words, and we'll learn these words, and if you're a note taker, you can write them down, and you can put them in your Facebook status later, and people will be like, dang, you go to that church with all the smart people, right? Uh, so, like, I've put stuff online from my sermons before and had people tell me, have you never heard of Keep It Simple? And I'm like, well, all the stupid people go to your church, all the smart people go here. So, uh, so. I didn't write that, I thought it. The, all right, so the heresy is two parts. The first part is Gnosticism, all right? Gnosticism, and this is great because it begins with a G. Uh, G-N-O-T-I-C-I-S-M. No, I spelled that wrong. And, uh, <laughs> but Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a very early uh, heresy in the church that believed, uh, that was creeping into the church, that believed uh, that there was a separation between the physical and the spiritual or the mental or the non-physical, uh, maybe even the emotional. And so that physicalness was actually bad and Gnosticism relied on knowledge being good, and that knowledge would actually be what saved you, and the physical would actually is just dragging us down. And what salvation is, is actually being free from the physical. That's Gnosticism. The other one, and this is even better, is antinomianism. Anti-N-O-M-E-N-ism. <laughs> All right? You can write that down. And these are big words, but it's the word to describe what's happening, all right? Uh, <clears throat> what's happening. And uh, <laughs> antinomianism. So if you're wondering if someone says, hey, how was church today? You're out for lunch with your non-Christian friends, and they're like, That's gr it was great. My pastor taught us how to combat your Gnostic antinomianism. And, and uh, they will probably fall to their knees in the restaurant and want to be a, a Christian at that moment. But uh, antinomianism is the belief in kind of almost a lawlessness. Now, what, here's the easiest way to explain this. In the Old Testament, there's all these laws, right? And there's laws about, like, go to the temple at this time, or do this kind of sacrifice, or do this, and they're kind of religious or ceremonial laws. And then there's other laws that are like moral laws, dealing with uh, things like murder, or adultery, or sexuality, or your relationship with your neighbor, and those kinds of things, right? Uh, those are more moral issues. Uh, when Jesus came, he said he fulfilled the law, meaning he fulfills all of those laws. And so a person who is, uh, believes or follows antinomianism actually believes that we don't have to follow any of the laws anymore, and frankly, any laws anymore. And so you can uh, you would do the say the prayer or sign the little commitment card, I follow Jesus or something like that, and then live however you want because of the promised forgiveness of Jesus. And you would actually, uh, a really good antinomianism person, would actually believe that you're increasing the grace of God because the more you do these things that other people consider sins but you don't have to worry about it because Jesus forgives everything, the more forgiveness that you're going to experience. Now, Romans 6 is why this is wrong. Um, <laughs> it actually says, should we go on sinning so that grace would increase all the more? And if you look online, there's a version of the Bible called the Cotton Patch Gospel. And Romans 6, it actually it has the words, hell no, as an answer for that. Uh, should you go on <laughs> sinning so that grace increases all the more? Hell no, all right? So... That's not my words, that's your words. Uh, as an American cotton patch people, you like that cotton patch Joe song? That's your words, all right. So when you, 
if you think antinomianism is uh, true or a way you can follow, then you would actually, according to the Bible, pervert the grace of God into sensuality. You actually no longer believe the grace of God is something uh, special or a gift to you. Instead, it is an opportunity for you to practice whatever kind of sensuality you would imagine. This would be like when, if you were to get married, and because that person says to you, till death do us part, you take that as permission to behave however you want to, because they said, till death do us part. And when Jesus says, it's till death, and then even then we don't part, and your reaction is, so now I can behave however I want. I was at a wedding yesterday, and I can't imagine anyone there thinking this at all. And in the same way, if someone's committed their life and put their full faith and trust in Jesus, I can't ever imagine someone saying, oh, God will forgive me, I can live and do and act however I want. But very early teachers in the church were coming in and saying these things, and saying and teaching, and they were unnoticed, and they crept in, and they, they taught that because of the grace of God and because God has made this commitment to you, and it's not just till death do us part, it's even till eternity is over, which is never do us part, so then that gives us permission to live however we want. That reaction, just something in us, hopefully notices that that reaction runs across uh, against everything that we would think or believe. Anytime a person has said to me, I'm committed to you, I believe in you, I see potential in you, I love you, uh, I want to help you grow, uh, anytime someone has shown any kind of positive connection to me, I've never thought, oh good, now I can do whatever I want because they are committed to me. And if I have, I have quickly learned that I was a jerk and shouldn't behave in that way and have turned and done what the Bible calls repented and turned back and sought forgiveness because of the way that I had taken advantage of a person's commitment to me. There isn't yet we apply this to our salvation, that I can live however I want because God will forgive me, because God has to forgive me, because he said he will. This is a very early heresy in the church, and this is a modern and current heresy in the church, that how you live doesn't matter, because we don't believe that Gnostic antinomianism is the gospel. We don't believe that the physical world doesn't matter. So you and the world that you live in actually matter. Your like physical body, your whole self, not just your emotional self or not just your spiritual self or your knowledge self, but your whole self is who Jesus lived the perfect life and died and was buried and was resurrected for. That's the problem with Gnostic antinomianism. That's the problem with people who believe that we can live our Christian lives inside a fortress or inside a bubble and not worry about how it will affect the outside world. Because if God loves you, the whole of you, then God loves the whole of humanity. So God actually cares for the physical reality of yourself 
and of every other person on this earth. Now there's, a, I'll say all the time that God loves you exactly the way you are, like exactly the way you are. Like if you're here today and you carry a lot of baggage and you're wondering, and I know I have friends who've been churchgoers for decades who struggle to believe still that God would love them because of their past. And when I sin and I'm repenting of my sin, I struggle to believe that God will forgive me of my sin because I think my sin is significant. And then I'm overwhelmed by the even greater significance of God's love towards me. But when we, if we believe that God loves you exactly the way you are, which I believe, and I'm not changing my belief on that because I think that's what the Bible teaches, that doesn't mean God wants you to stay exactly the way you are. When I was at the wedding yesterday, it was Nolan and Joel. It was fantastic. Nolan goes here and his family goes here. And uh, uh, Joel goes to my friend Bob's church. It's in, our, it's a, in the denomination wedding, so it's great. It's old school, right? And, uh, um, but they're up in Milwaukee, Oregon. But at the wedding, and you can't help but think this, as you look around, you see people who've been married. Uh, for, they count it in decades instead of they're going to be counting it in hours today, right? Like, and they think, we made it 24 hours. And you're like, I've had fights last longer than that, all right? Like, but there is, when you, there is, you don't know who you're marrying because you don't know who they're going to be a decade or two decades or five decades from now. Instead, when you get married, you make this commitment to each other. And the reason that you marry the person you married, and husbands, this is a great time to reach over and hold her hand. This is a great time for that. But the reason that you married the person you married is because they made you want to be the best you that you could be. And probably they triggered something in you that made that happen. Whether that was encouragement or accountability or calling you out on things or uh, loving you in a way that made you want to be the best you that you could be. When I got married, I don't say to my wife, well, you love me, so I'm staying the same. I do not act all the time like 21-year-old me, uh, right? I don't sometimes, but not all the time. And, and there, but as we grow older, someday I won't act like 30-something-year-old me and 38-year-old me, I think. And, and there, is, there isn't this, like, I know that I don't stay the same. I become a better version of myself because of the love that someone has for me. And the way that I love them back is I become a better version of myself. And I continually grow and I continually move towards this, move towards each other, really, because of this. And so when Jesus loves us and expresses that love of us, it actually motivates us to become a better version of ourselves, not motivates us to live however we want, gives us license to do the things we want because we know we have this Jesus-like forgiveness card we can pull out and say, hey, I'm good, you have to let me into heaven. If that's the understanding of the gospel, then I would say they don't actually understand the motivation to the gospel, the love of God, which causes the kindness of God, which leads us to repentance and causes those things. So, now, let's get to the sketchy stuff. 
Jude says, I want to remind you, although you once knew it, that Jesus, and this is interesting, that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Some Bibles say the Lord, but older uh, copies of the scripture that we dig up in archaeology say Jesus, meaning that Jesus, this is talking about when the Israelites left Egypt and became a people. We're talking like 1500 BC, and it's saying Jesus was involved in doing that. When the Israelites left Egypt, they went out into the desert. God made them a people and promised them, I'm taking you to the new land. So it was called the promised land. They got close. They sent in some spies to the promised land, 12 of them. They all come back. You might have, if you went to too much Sunday school, you know this story. But they came back and 10 of them said, no dice, man. Those guys are big. They are strong. This desert is not that bad. Let's stay here. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, I think we can take them. Because God said, remember, we get to go to the promised land. And since God said that, mm, I think we could take them. And the people sided with the ten. They're like, yeah, everyone there is like, screw that. We're not going there. We are staying here in the desert. We'll get some suntan lotion. We are staying here. This is like the almost promised land, right? We're good. God gets a little bit angry and says, okay, you don't believe me. This whole generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, will die here in the desert. God actually doesn't let even Moses go into the promised land. Moses got to go up and look at it before he died. <laughs> even Moses. <laughs> because of their unbelieving hearts. Because they didn't believe the things that God said. Then he reminds them, and that's, sorry, that's in uh, Genesis 19. Then he, no, that's not. That's in Exodus. This actually works backwards. Genesis 19 is the third example. This is Genesis 6. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their property dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And we think, if you're living today, you think that means when the angels left heaven, right? Like when the, Satan led the great rebellion and God cast them out of heaven. That's probably not what Jude was actually talking about. Jude's talking about most likely, Genesis 6, where Genesis 6, uh, 1 through 4, talks about the sons of God, meaning their word for angels, actually came down onto earth and married women, uh, human women, and left their right position, and they are actually been chained up under gloomy darkness until the, great, and, uh, until the judgment of the great day. Uh, it's a weird scripture because it's hard to understand, but the angels, angels and humans actually interact according to what the scripture teaches. And apparently some angels decided their human women were so beautiful that they wanted to marry them and, in, and in, uh, procreate with them, and they decided to go down and do that and left their own position of authority for that. Uh, this is why uh, uh, we struggle with this, because this, this is in like movies and stuff, and we think it's romantic. Oh, they were in love. Not romantic. All right, this is leaving the place that you belong to engage in something that, where you do not belong. And so they're under judgment for that. Then the next verse, verse 7, says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah, this is in Genesis 19, were actually a city where Lot, uh, Abraham's uh, relative, actually has two angels visit him. And uh, like angels interaction with humans, again. And he has these angels visit him. And a gang of men from the city come and bang on the door. And they want to have sex with Lot's visitors. They want to uh, rape them 
as a group of men in a homosexual way. And God's judgment on that, on that activity, on that city, was to destroy it with fire from heaven. And in the time that this was written, uh, it seems in most of the archaeological things that there was still smoke. Like it was like a, being at a national park where they have geysers and stuff, there was like still smoke and a sulfury smell coming out of where that was. And so people would go by there and assume that that served as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In the very early world when they didn't have the science to understand why the geyser was happening, they assumed this is what's happening. That's like an entrance to hell and the smoke is coming out. These are wildly harsh examples, aren't they? Like these are aggressive when you're just talking about some people who are coming into the church and teaching some things that are wrong. And it's not even like, like it, it's like maybe we should chill out a bit. Like they're probably good guys. The people, the unnoticed creeps, they're probably dads and husbands and probably had a family and that kind of thing. But they were coming into the church and teaching something which was leading people away from a relationship with Jesus rather than towards a relationship with Jesus. And according to Jude, the result of such behavior is best shown in the examples which involve physical death, being stuck in the gloomy darkness awaiting the judgment day, and fireballs raining out of heaven to destroy your city. Do you think that God has a passion for his church? The Bible gives this example, uh, like teaches us that the church is like the bride of Christ and it's the best example. That's why marriage is so special to me, that we see what God and us and our relationship is like in those moments. But the, if God is or Jesus is the groom, then the offense against the groom a blatant and intentional offense against the groom receives a radical reaction to that. And so how do we, what do we do? The best thing is to not teach anything or not believe anything or just read my Bible and be alone and avoid that kind of stuff. I actually think that this passage might push us towards understanding our scripture a little more. We actually have, at our church, we have something called trustees, and trustees are responsible for a couple of things, and it's kind of fun. We have a book of discipline that guides us. The trustees are responsible for our legal actions, uh, so making sure we have proper insurance and lawyers and those kinds of things that protect, uh, like, our children and our workers and our youth and those kinds of things. Uh, and then the trustees manage our real property, which is our trailers. And, uh, <laughs> but then the trustees are responsible uh, to maintain the orthodoxy of what is preached from the pulpit. Meaning, if I preach something and I start telling you something that's heresy, you will see a trustee get out of his seat and remove me from the stage. Uh, I've given them that permission, all right? Uh, more if there's like a guest speaker or something like that, because some of our trustees are kind of strong, um, and they would injure me. So I'm encouraged to preach orthodoxy. But, um, but there is, our trustees actually like we have people leaders in our church that maintain a responsibility for the orthodox preaching of the word from the pulpit because of passages like this that we believe this is actually that important 
and then your own personal belief is actually that important. 10, 20 years ago, most Christians, this is a quote from Mac Powell from the band Third Day, most Christians got their theology from Christian radio. Like the things that you believed, you learned from the songs that you... Now, I would say most Christians get their theology from viral YouTube videos. You believe what you believe because someone posted something, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm down with that. Like, there, I believe that. With no checking the scripture, no regard for how this works, it's just like that video had a sweet soundtrack. I am pretty sure that he was a clean-cut guy. I believe it now. That, to me, is insane. Like, that, that's insanity to me. To say that God gave us his word and instead I'm going to go with the YouTube of the cool guy. <laughs> but that's where we're at. And I'm not saying we should stop making YouTubes. Make all the YouTubes you want. Blah, 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 blah. All right? Who cares? Uh, because we have the Bible. And because we know what the truth is. And because we don't have to worry about the truth. Because we contend for it and fight for it. We actually fight for the truth if we're following the words of scripture there'll be frequently be times where we there'll be a video online and i watch it and people are liking it and i'm like that's all that's all good that's great it's also in the bible <laughs> or there'll be a video and it's all good except the basis for it it falls apart or it's all good except the way they interpret that scripture in the next chapter if you interpret that next chapter the same way we all have to get rid of our homes and our cars, right? And they are using the internet wirelessly in their home. It falls apart. It should be an encouragement for us as Christians to actually know the things that we believe. Then, as you learn the things that you believe, I hope that it comes across as an encouragement that God actually loves you, all of you. And I don't mean all of you in the room. I mean all of you as an individual. Like every part of you, God actually loves you. The good parts, the bad parts, the parts that you don't love, the parts that you struggle with, Jesus actually lived and died and was resurrected for those parts of you just as much as the nice, shiny Christian parts of you. It doesn't mean that you can just stay that way it actually, hopefully, is an encouragement and an allowance for you to allow God to work in you to make you everything that he dreams of you being, the best version of yourself. As you learn and grow and understand the great love of God isn't just something that belongs in Gnosticism, isn't something that just belongs in escaping this world, this all, it's all going to burn, it's all going away, and eventually it'll just be a spiritual body. It actually is relevant and meaningful for every part of you in every part of your life. And it should affect the way you interact with others, and maybe even more difficultly, difficult to understand, it should affect the way you interact with yourself and believe and think about yourself. Let me pray for us, and then I think it's good for us to worship a bit. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way your word confronts us. We thank you that even the parts of the Bible that go against what we want to think or we want to believe or that we just kind of naturally in the way that we live feel, 
I just thank you that your Bible carries no regard for that and that you are the kind of God who loves us to the point that you'll tell us truth, that loves us to the point that you'll lead us into your truth and your holiness and your righteousness and your goodness. God, allow us to know you in the, in the truth, in the truth, to know you as the way and that you would be our life in all that we are, not just our spiritual life or our emotional life or our thought life, but really our physical actions in this world and our physical being. At that point, God, may you be our Lord and may you be our Savior. By your grace we pray. Amen.